The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. All right, we're good to go. Okay, so... Um... The main theme for us in this season of Lent has uh, been looking at how knowing Jesus moves us from a barren life to a fruitful life. We have noticed that all of the full life in Jesus comes to us when we draw near to God and his promises. And so we've been looking at what some of these promises of God are, right? That, that God fills us with hope, that God is a generous giver, that he wants us to be, uh, that he wants us to, 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 to see how much he will care for us when we come to him. But this week, we're looking at the hinge on which all of this life in Christ hangs. All of our life in Christ comes to us only because we have been reconciled to God. Our sin has been dealt with. The Bible tells us, we read it in the 2 Corinthians passage, that God has uh, reconciled us to himself in Christ, right? We have been turned from an enemy into a friend. But one of the biggest problems for us is that we oftentimes fail to see ourselves as reconciled. Each of us, in our own way, struggles with a sense of our own guilt and shame at our past or our presence. And it robs us of this full life in Christ. How do we deal with our messy and broken lives? Now, we are more like Jason Bourne than we like to think. The iconic movie series based on the character Jason Bourne, if you're not familiar, he's essentially Superman with a handgun. And uh, so this, this series tells us of a very high profile, incredibly strong and intelligent CIA assassin who, uh, in a mission gone wrong, suffers from disassociative amnesia. He forgets a lot of his past in this, and the movies tell the story of how he rediscovers who he is, what he's done, what he is, what his role in this world is. And as he is doing this, just to make things a little bit more difficult for himself, he, he has almost everybody in the world chasing after him, wanting to kill him. But as Jason Bourne learns more about himself, he realizes that his life is messy and complicated. He has done things that, on a second look, uh, when he takes a step back, because of his condition as forgetting the past, when he takes a step back and re-looks at some of the things he'd done, he realizes that he, he isn't as moral or as good or as upright as he had thought he was. But Bourne is a good guy, right? We never get the sense that this, these movies point, point him as a, out as a person who is bad or who needs to change. Instead, we are caught in ourselves in the same time. Because he has this sense 
for justice to prevail, to make the world a safer place, for good to triumph. But in his attempts to do this, we discover that he's actually made things more messy than to begin with. In the second film, The Born Supremacy, one Hollywood writer sums up the final scene in which Jason Bourne goes to a girl who he has killed the parents of in an attempt to free himself from the guilt that he is experiencing from what he has done. He goes to this girl and seeks to uncover, to confess that though he wanted to do good, he has hurt her and her family bad. And this is what the Hollywood writer writes about this. He, born, is not seeking forgiveness. No, he's there to confess his guilt to the one person more haunted by it than he. To get it off of his chest and acknowledge that as hard as he's tried to be a good person, he's a bad man, a liar, a killer in the service of liars and killers. And so Bourne took his confession to the one person who he knew that he had wronged. He went right to the source. He confessed it to this girl. But the Hollywood writer continues in commentating on this scene, and he says this, The look on the young woman's face once Bourne leaves, after he's confessed, after telling the truth, leaves both him and the audience thinking that perhaps the lie was more preferable. That maybe as painful and as, as a guilty conscience is, nothing hurts more than knowing what causes the pain to begin with. As Bourne points out to us, we need to deal with our guilt and our shame. It festers up inside of us. We can't keep it hidden. Our humanity won't let us. But how do we actually deal with it and are healed by it instead of dropping it like a bomb in the room and making everything worse? Psalm 32 shows us exactly how. In Psalm 32, the psalmist is moved from guilt and shame to complete joy and freedom in God. The weight was lifted. And the psalmist shows us three things that we need to know in order to grasp and to live into our reconciled, free, joy-filled life in Christ. These three things are we need to know our sin, our confession, and our reconciler. Our sin, our confession, and our reconciler. So first, what is our sin? What is sin? What causes guilt and shame in our lives? Well, Psalm 32 is a really good place for us to ask this question because the psalmist uses all three words for sin in the Old Testament. Yes, the Old Testament has multiple, and the, the Hebrew language has more than one word to describe sin. It's a lot, it's a better language than English. Let's just face it. And it gets into a little bit of a deeper level of what we mean when we talk about sin. So let's quickly move through these three words. They are sin, transgression, and iniquity. And you can find them all in this psalm. And so what do we mean by this? Well, first, let's look at the word sin. The first 
It's, it's, a, it's a general word, and it, it's the, based on the Hebrew word kata. Can you all say that word for me? Kata. It's like you're doing a karate move. Kata. This literally means to miss the mark. One famous example is from Judges 20, verse 16, where it describes the Israelite soldiers who were the, the elite soldiers. They're the best of the best in the Israelite army. And the, they're described as people who could sling a stone at a hair on someone's head and not kata, not miss the mark. Okay, so have you ever thrown a ball or a snowball and tried to hit a tree or hit a person and you've missed? You katad, right? You missed the mark. And this this word is applied to our lives, our moral lives, when we miss the mark, when we try to do good, and in fact, we end up not doing the good that we want to do, right? Paul uses this language, right? I want to do good, but the very good that I try to do, I do not do. And then the good that I don't do, all of that complexity is wrapped up in this word kata. It's a moral word, and it means missing the mark, the second word that is in this psalm is the word transgression. And this is based on the Hebrew word pesha. You want to say pesha, pesha. Pesha refers to a violation or a break in a relationship. And so the difference between pesha sin and kata sin is this. If you had somebody break into your house in the middle of the night and take the most prized possession from your room and walk out the front door, it would depend on who that person was, whether or not it was kata or pesha. If it was a random stranger, they would have morally wronged you, kata against you. But if that person turned out to be your neighbor, Bob, who walked into your room in the middle of the night, took your most prized possession, that would not just be a moral sin, that would be a break in that relationship, a break in the trust because you should be able to trust your neighbors and your friends. And for them to do that is pesha. It's a violation. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that this word is all over the Old Testament. Right? The Israelites are constantly violating and breaking the relationship they have between God. And we do the same. We do this all the time in our lives. And the third word is Iniquity. Now, this is one way that the Hebrew word avon is translated. This word is, it means to be bent or to be crooked. And the biblical authors use this word to talk about times when our consciences or our actions are bent out of shape, where they're crooked, where they're wrong, where they're off. Now, the psalmist in this psalm uses all three words to describe their sin. And I came, I wondered and reflected on that this week. Why would the psalmist use all three words? And I think it has to do with the fact that this psalm is a communal thing. The psalmist is not just, you know, it's based out of the psalmist's own experience, but it's not limited to that. The psalmist is inviting all of us to consider our lives, our, the times that we've missed the mark, broken relationships, being bent or crooked. He is lumping everything in and inviting us to see the weight 
of our sin. It is an invitation to consider our own lives. Now, one of the rhythms for my Sabbath day is to listen to a sermon from another faith community. And because and, as, a, as a pastor, sometimes we struggle with that, that, that we often do a lot of preaching and not a lot of listening. And so I, I've, I try to get into the habit of listening. And this week I listened to a sermon by a, a Portland pastor named John Mark Comer, and it wrecked me. And it was so applicable to, I didn't even realize this, but it was applicable to our sermon this morning. And he pointed out uh, the church fathers and mothers and in the past different layers of sin as an attempt for us to begin to examine our own hearts. And so he put on the, Dan, if I can get you to go, there we go, the four layers of our sin as a way for us to reflect on our own hearts. The first layer, Comer described, as gross sins. Now these are sins that um, are sins uh, that, that our, our culture and our society would also agree with us as Christians and say, yeah, these are wrong. These are culturally unacceptable sins. These are Ten Commandments sins. These are lying, adultery, right? Um, things, that, things that we would share with the rest of our culture. These are things that we'd stay away from. This is the first layer of our sin. They're fairly easy to uh, to, to notice in our own lives. And they come at a cost, and so we often stay away from them. The second layer is deliberate sins. Now, these are socially acceptable sins, like gossip, and cussing, even things that we do like, that are socially acceptable, like watching any movie on Netflix and not necessarily paying attention to that sex scene in the movie that Maybe that's not a healthy thing for us to, to watch or to put our eyes on. These are deliberate sins that our culture is generally okay with. Uh, lumping into this is, you know, things like uh, not cultivating generous hearts, right? Not being a cheerful giver. All of these things are, are deliberate sins that are culturally acceptable, but that don't foster a right relationship with God. The third layer is unconscious sins. Now, as we get deeper and deeper, we start to feel the weight more and more. These are blind spot sins. These are sins that over time, if we're intentional and we surround ourselves with people who really ask questions about our lives, we will see the ugly bits and pieces of our personhood come to light. These are normally more internal than external. These are the things that I think Jesus does well at pointing out on the Sermon on the Mount when he ups the bar of morality, right, to try to get underneath the religious nature of our morality. And he says, well, yeah, you might not you know, kill somebody, but you, are you ever angry? Because that's the same thing. These are blind spot sins that we often don't see. And if we don't examine ourselves, we'll begin to fester inside of us. These also include sins of omission, right? Things that we shouldn't do or should be doing that we don't do. And by omitting them are actually sins in our lives. 
And now the last layer is trust structures. Now these are the deep inner postures of our being that do not rely on ourselves for our well-being. Whatever we put our trust in that is above God is an idol. And we need to rid ourselves of it. Tim Keller says that whatever we look at and say in our heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning and value and significance and security is an idol. What are the things that grow inside of us that we put our trust in that come before God? Now, these are not behavioral necessarily. And so they're really hard to diagnose. We, we often find our idols by looking at our coping mechanisms. When we're under stress, where do we go? When we're feeling anxious, where do we go? Right? The sin, in order for us to see ourselves as reconciled and and, 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 and partake in the full life of Christ, we have to feel the weight of our sin. We tend to be pretty good at searching our hearts for the first two layers, maybe a third or fourth, if, if we've got some accountability in our lives. Jerry Bridges challenges us by saying, though, he says this, we are, who are believers tend to evaluate our character and conduct against the moral culture we live in. We tend to evaluate our character based on our moral culture. And since usually we live at a higher moral standard than society at large, it's easy for us to feel good about ourselves and assume that God feels that way also. But we fail to reckon with the reality of sin still dwelling within us. What in you needs chipping away at? What in you needs to be brought into the light? Psalm 32 tells us that in order to live as reconciled people, we must know our sin. We must also know our confession. So the language of confession in Psalm 32 is very helpful. The psalmist uh, describes this dying. If you notice the first part of the psalm, right? It's a very, like, physical, uh, you know, he's, he's wasting away. His bones are groaning. He's feeling the weight of the sin that he has decided to keep hidden, to keep secret. And we often do the same thing. But to keep our sin hidden, we have to appease our consciences, we have to tell ourselves a different story than what has happened. In his sermon on this psalm, Tim Keller gives us seven things that we do to cover our guilt and shame over our sins. These are seven stories that we tell us that are not the gospel. First, we blame shift. We say, it's not my fault, my mother made me do it. My father made me do it. My friends made me do it. I had these circumstances, and that's why I did it. You would have done the same thing if you were in my shoes. We blame shift. We cover it up. We keep it hidden by telling us that it's not our fault. The second thing we do is we define it away. 
Well, it's not really wrong. It's more creative than wrong. Or it's just that little thing, and little things don't really count that much. Or it just happened that once, I won't, I won't let it happen again. The third thing we do is we deaden ourselves to it. We medicate. We go shopping. We get drunk. We do pleasurable things to try to forget the pain and to move on from it, thinking that if we just forget about it, then it'll all go away. Fourth thing is we, we criticize and we gossip and we run other people down. We think things like, everybody is stealing more than me, or everybody lies just a little bit. Last week, so-and-so told me so-and-so, and that means that what I did is not as bad because they did something a lot worse, and so I must be okay. So it's really fine. It's really fine. Fifth, we try to achieve. We deal with our guilt and our shame by saying, Look at what I've done. Let's, let's just ignore that side, but look at what I've done. I, I have definitely done more good than bad. Sixth, we give incredibly generously. We try to give our way out of our guilt. We give of ourselves, we give of our time, we give of our money. Look at what I've given to the poor or the oppressed or the marginalized. We try to give our way out of guilt and shame. Seven is we beat ourselves up. We think, oh, I'm such a bad person, so I'm going to make myself miserable so that I, because I, I don't deserve to feel good ever. I'm going to beat myself up about this and just keep myself down. See, all of these seven ways are ways that we try to keep our sin covered, but none of them actually deals with sin. The breakthrough in this psalm comes when the psalmist makes a decision to not cover his sin any longer. We must, in order to be free from our sin, we must acknowledge our sin and the sin beneath our sin, right? The attitudes of our heart that led to the action, the selfishness, the pride, the inner motivations. We have to keep digging, and we must uncover and bring to light all of the things in our heart. The key to true confession is bringing it to light. Time and time again in the scriptures, we see that theme of darkness to light over and over and over again because of how important it is for us to grow in Christ, to see and take hold of us being reconciled. We must keep digging. We must bring it to light. But lastly, we have to see, like what Jason Bourne did, where he brought his confession to light. Right? He followed the steps that we have so far. Right? He, he knew his sin, and he brought it to light. But we have to bring it to the right person. So we have to see that, that we have broken not just rules, but hearts. Right? Our sin is, has, has led us to break relationship with each other and to break our relationship with God. We have hurt God. We have hurt family. 
We have hurt friends. And we are unable to heal this pain on our own. I find it so fascinating that sin in the Bible is often described as a weight. This is why it all depends on who we look for to heal us from the weight of our sin. See, any confession is a transfer of weight. When we bring something to light and confess it to the person that we have wronged, we transfer that weight onto them. We, we come clean, but it often brings about more pain than when we started. When Born confessed, he transferred the pain he was feeling onto someone else, but he made it worse. That person could not bear the weight. Someone had to pay for it. Someone had to carry it. This is why it's so fascinating. In the psalm, the Hebrew word for forgive actually means to lift or to carry. And it brings about a sense of relieving a burden. It is usually the weight that sin has caused, that, the, that, has caused that, that we seek to be relieved from. And it begs the question, how can God in this psalm just lift that weight? How can the psalmist transfer that weight onto God's shoulders? Why? How does that work? It's because of what Paul says in verse 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might in him become the righteousness of God. How can God lift off the burden of sin off the psalmist? Because eventually the weight would come down on someone else. Someone who would feel the weight of sin so badly that it wouldn't just cause them agony. It would kill him. Christ became sin for us. He took on his shoulders the weight of your past, of your present, of your future, and carried it to the cross. You don't have to carry it any longer. The Catechism talks about what this means for us. What this causes in us when we realize that Christ is carried the weight. What is rising to life of the new self? What is the forgiven weightless self? It is a wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. This, I think, is what Paul is talking about when he says, as reconciled people, you are reconcilers, agents of reconciliation in this world, because your motivation comes from you being reconciled. You're made new. 
It's joy-filled. Do you hear it? In this way, the Christian life works backwards, right? We, we often think that if we keep things hidden, if we keep things down, then that's going to be the best for us. But the gospel works differently. It's by bringing things to light. It's by putting it on Jesus. And it's by receiving the joy of knowing that we are forgiven. That is the joy-filled life. Now, how do we start to live this way? I think it starts with what you're already doing. We don't have to do anything new. Instead, we can ask ourselves, how can I model this kind of reconciliation in my relationships right now? How can I model this kind of reconciliation in my workplace? Right? How, and this doesn't mean that we just go around confessing our sins to everyone, but we know the pattern. We know the reality. We know that we are reconciled. Trillian Newbell helps us out. Um, I thought I had this quote up. I must have gotten rid of it. Trillian Newbell uh, helps us out with knowing what this is. She is a black writer who has found herself in the ministry of reconciliation. And she describes it like this. Every day when I wake up, I'm reminded of the fractures in the world. But God has called me to be a reconciler. One who does the work of reconciliation, restoring relationships, bringing harmony, resolving differences. For me, this task has meant learning to be forbearing, forgiving, and patient for speaking the truth in love. See how her role as a reconciler comes directly from her sense of being forgiven by God. She can be forbearing because she knows that she has somebody who bears her brokenness. She can be forgiving because she knows that there's somebody who has forgiven her. She can speak the truth in love because she knows she can always speak the truth to Christ. Now, on the way home from church today, or whether you're at home I have these two questions to think about. And if you want, you can take a picture of this slide or write it down. I think these are two helpful questions for us, for us to think about. You know, as we think about our own sin and confessing our sin, bringing it to light, ask yourself this, who is a trusted person in my life in which I can uncover my sin with? Can they help? me seek reconciliation and joy. Who is one trusted person? And second, then, what is one way, one tangible way this week that my being reconciled to God changes me? What is one way? Perhaps it's seeing a relationship differently, talking about a certain person differently, acting a certain way what is one way that my being reconciled by God changes me this week? And then lastly, as we conclude and we're preparing ourselves to the come, come to the table, let me ask you, what are you carrying? What do you need to confess to God this morning? As we prepare ourselves for the table, and in our prayer time in just a second, I'll leave some silence for us to just reflect and meditate. And as we hear the loud stomping feet of the little kids coming in, don't let that distract you. We'll just sit in that and reflect and confess to God together.
So let's pray. God, you are a reconciler. You've drawn near to us. And in Christ, we are made new. Help us, Father, as we see our lives, as we reflect on our past and our present. Help us to uncover our sin and bring it to light that we may know more fully the full life that you invite us into. In these next few moments, Father, would you search our hearts and know us? Hear our anxious thoughts. Test our ways. And lead us in the way of everlasting. 